Hello, and welcome to the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Gianni. And today we're talking about how we're not paying you to have fun. No, we're not, are we, are we Jeff? We are not. We are not. So if you don't enjoy your job, suck it up. We're not paying you to have fun. <laughs> don't tell me you believe that, Jeff. Well, you know, there, there's going to be... Uh, there's going to be some elements of tough love in this episode, but uh, also some uh, some advice that I wouldn't characterize as tough love. Uh, I think one of our takeaways in the end is going to be you're entitled to be uh, egotistical. Exactly. So what are we talking about? We've kind of beaten around the bush. Uh, it's really about, um, you know, in, enjoying your work. Are you even, you know, in the right place? Those kind of questions. How can you tell? What can you do if you feel that you aren't? Right, Jeff? Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, every, every job has fun parts and boring parts. Uh, maybe not Maybe not every job. Um, but I will say every job has boring parts, even the amazing ones. Uh, and I, and I think let's, let's maybe start off by talking about the, the things that make a job not fun. Yeah, what what does what what makes a job not fun? I think it's not fun if you don't know what you're doing, if you don't know why you're doing it, if it feels kind of pointless, right? You're just sort of showing up, you're doing the same right. stupid thing over and over again, and it never gets better because you keep doing the same stupid thing. Wasn't it Einstein who said that? Um, what was it? Uh, foolishness is doing the same thing and expecting a different result. I've heard that as a definition of insanity, but uh, yeah, attributed to different people. Yeah. 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 So you, you had wanted to talk about the elements of motivation. I think uh, Daniel Pink uh, wrote a book called drive. Maybe do you want to touch on the, the different elements of motivation that he discussed and how that can apply to. uh, Yep. Yeah. Let's do that. To a job that you don't like to do. Exactly. So I, I think, uh, dear listener, you'll notice we'll keep coming back to to those points because somehow I, you know, when I first read them, they they sounded a little cheesy to me, but they explain so much, and and you can reduce almost all problems to to this. So Daniel Pink wrote this book called Drive, in which he, uh, in in which he discussed motivation and specifically the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Now, what's extrinsic motivation? Extrinsic motivation is if I take a gun, point it at Jeff and say, Jeff, your money or your life. Yes, sir. You can uh, have my money. Exactly. I'm, I'm sure you will feel extremely motivated, but this is extrinsic motivation. You know, you, you're not feeling that I should really have your money because, you know, that's the right thing to do. I just happen to have a very, you know, motivating thing in my hand, right? Right. Um, so that's int- extrinsic motivation. And, and certainly it's something that, you know, that works. And there are le- a lot less dramatic forms of extrinsic motivation, such as paying somebody to do a job. But it, all, all things considered, it's maybe not such a powerful motivator. We all know people who say, you know, I'm just doing this job for the money. I, I don't actually care about the outcome. I don't really care about what I'm doing here. I'm here because I have to pay my bills, which, which you know, honestly, is, is fair enough. I'm not looking down on those people. It's just that 
Isn't that a pity? Wouldn't it be much nicer if they said, yes, I, you know, I enjoyed its work. There's something important and valuable about what I'm doing here. I'm not just doing it for a paycheck, even though the paycheck, quite frankly, is nice. All right. So and th this feeling is called intrinsic motivation. I'm doing something because it seems the right thing to me. And so what are the elements of that? Exactly. So how do you get to intrinsic motivation. Mr. Pink said there are three elements that go into this. They are called autonomy, mastery, and purpose. So what's autonomy? The, the opportunity to make my own choices, both on a cultural level, you know, am I, am I allowed within my organization to make my own choices or will I get in trouble? Uh, but also there are technical aspects to autonomy. Like, can I even make a choice or am I completely shackled to, say, a given architecture or a given mm. team structure? That's a hard. So that's the first aspect. Yeah. Yep. That can be, and that can be a harder one. Oh, yeah, definitely. That, that, that can be really tough. So autonomy, first one. The second one is mastery. Do I have the required skills to perform this task that I've been given? Do I have the necessary knowledge? And then thirdly, purpose. Why am I doing this thing? What's the point in doing it? If I don't know, then you know, then you know, then I'm just doing something kind of random, aren't I? And what's more, I can't really bring my mastery and autonomy to bear. Like even if I could make my own choices, autonomy, if I don't know what for, purpose then I will end up not making any choices or random ones, perhaps. Exactly. Exactly. So when we kind of map these three things, well, when we look at the the fun versus the boring parts or, or um, <laughs> unsatisfying parts of any job, kind of with th these three uh, factors in mind, I, I think we can see how they, they map pretty well. So when we were brainstorming about, you know, the fun versus the boring parts of specifically working on embedded systems. So, you know, doing the same things over and over isn't fun. Completely agreed. <laughs> and I can think of, um, you know, the, the most pertinent example I can think of is, is running manual testing procedures over and over and over and over makes me want to tear my hair out. Oh yes. Tell me about it. I've been a manual tester for many years in the beginning of my career. Uh, and, and I would, I, I would say maybe there's, there's elements of two, like between autonomy and mastery, um, maybe you have, you, maybe you have mastered the skills to manually test, but you're not increasing your skills by just doing that same thing over and over. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not only do you have the skills to do your job, but do you feel like your skill, um, and your capabilities as a person are increasing over time? And certainly, if you're doing the same thing over and over, they are not. Yeah, and you're not being autonomous, are you? You're, you're just doing the same like manual test steps over right. and over again. Right. If, on the other hand, you were doing exploratory testing, I, I guess that could be exhilarating at times. Like, I'm really curious to see how the system is going to react to me doing this thing to it. Right, um, right. And then we're back to autonomy, aren't we? Yeah, and I like I can think back when I you know, first got into embedded systems and I, oh, I, I think I wrote a, a can driver and, and then a kind of a messaging protocol that lived on top of that can driver. And I, and I wasn't told to, to do this testing part. I was just like, I, uh, you know, 
I worry about this. I want to make sure this is bulletproof. I'm going to push it until it breaks. We've talked about this, you know, in other contexts in the past, but I chose to kind of build a little test harness where I set up two boards and had them screaming messages, messages, each other messages at each other over this link and just pushed it faster and faster and faster until something broke. And lo and behold, you know, I actually found a bug with that. I found a, you know, an interrupt that was misconfigured that, uh, you know, it was one of those those bugs that you wouldn't find uh, unless you push the system to its limits. And I found it. And then later on, I pushed it and it just ran out of memory. And that was that's, that's not a bug. That's just a limitation of the of the hardware I was working with. So that then I felt good. I was like, OK, I pushed it as fast as it can go. And I just ran ran into a funnel limitation of the hardware. No one told me to do that. That was exp- that was exactly the kind of exploratory testing you're talking about. Um, and I had fun doing it. I enjoyed setting that up. And then I felt a sense of satisfaction when I was done um, with that work. Why did you feel Why did you feel a sense of satisfaction? Because you knew the purpose of what you were doing. You were proving to yourself, yes, this thing that I've built, I can trust it. I can, you know, unleash it on my customers, on my users. Exactly. Exactly. All right. So what are some other things that are not fun? Um, not making any progress as an organization isn't fun. Like you're, you're looking at what your engineering team or even the company as a whole is producing. And we're just, we just feel like I'm spinning our wheels. Like we, we have ideas for new features and we just can't get them out the door. And we're always waiting on people. And it's just, our cycle time is forever. We're not making any progress. That's not any fun. No, it's not. And, and also the next bullet point you wrote, we wasting time in useless meetings, in you know building features that don't actually move the needle, and I I think what feels to me like a common point for all of this is a, a lack of feedback. Like you can tell this is not producing value. Perhaps everybody else can tell as well, and nobody's acting on it. That I mean that that's frustrating, isn't it? Oh my gosh, yes. I, I really liked the 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 sentence you wrote for us. It, you know, talking about like the there's there's some things that are just part of the nature of embedded systems. Like you're working on, if you hate working on hardware and software together, you probably need to go find a different industry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and yeah, and and I think the point is to a degree that is like almost a choice having fun is is a bit of a choice if you are an artist but you hate or, or rather if you say you know being an artist is boring because washing brushes sucks <laughs> then you kind of missed the point didn't you yep yep so <laughs> i love i love that point so uh yeah there there are there are things that are intrinsic to any job that um even if you love the job, you will find boring. And some of those you just have to work past. And, and you know, things that are, I'm looking down at, at uh, some of the devices that are on my desk here and thinking about things that are um, basically unavoidable, but that are not fun. Uh, you know, as, as much as I, as much as I preach about TDD and testing and, and verification, you know, sometimes bugs slip through that are, difficult to track down. And sometimes you just got to suck it up and spend a week tracking down that horrible race condition. And that's not fun. But it is satisfying in the end when you find it. So the the process of that 
you know, tedious effort may not be fun, but in the end, once I've found it and fixed it, there is that sense of satisfaction of, okay, I'm, I'm back on track. Like this, this week of, of tedium of tracking down this very hard to find bug served the overall prep purpose of this project that I'm working on. And so I can live with that. Yeah. And I, exactly. And, and I think this is something that is also quite important. Um, we talked about this before the show that it dawned on me um, a couple of years ago that I was a particular kind of person. And I suppose most listeners of this show are, you know, those kinds of persons. But I think it's interesting to to call this out and to realize that, oh yeah, there are different people out there. Um, you know, because developing software is probably uniquely frustrating. And I think you need an extremely high degree of frustration tolerance. Just think about it. As you're writing new code, you try something, doesn't work. You try something slightly different. It doesn't work. You try it again. It doesn't work. Then you try it again. Oh, it works. Okay, fine. Now the next problem. We try something. It doesn't work. We try something different. It doesn't work. You know, you keep failing and failing. You spend your entire day failing. And the instant you succeed, you say, okay, case closed. Next failure. It takes a particular kind of person to not go crazy, I think. Yeah, I would agree with that. I, I imagine most of our li listeners, you know, have have been in the industry a while and kind of got into it because they they enjoyed that kind of work. Um, but I will say, even even within any industry, um, and embedded systems development is is no is no exception. There, there's different types of jobs within that. Um, you know, we talked about the kind of testers on one extreme in terms of the the types of things they were called on to do on a day-to-day -day basis, maybe, and then developers in the middle, and then product owners on the other extreme. Um, you know, those three different jobs within this industry require different skill sets, different strengths, um, and have very different day-to-day, -day, you know, Frustrations, frustrations and and just the the types of work yeah. you do on a day-to-day -day basis can be very different exactly and this is why i wanted to call this out like if you're moving from one position to the next maybe if you're moving from being an individual contributor to a manager or something you will come across a new set of challenges a new set of frustrations and it will be important to sort of think about whether you are the right kind of person for this you know, I are you the kind of person who can be frustrated all day long and and find some perverse um, amusement in that, or are you just not? And so, you know, maybe a product owner will never be a good software developer, even if they could learn programming, but they will perhaps never lose the frustration about chasing, you know, a memory leak for a week, which. I mean, fine, it's frustrating, it's frustrating for everyone, but, but you know, so, some people can't withstand that better than others. And, and I think there is value in sort of looking inside yourself and discovering what kind of a person you are. Case in point, I, I, um, I encountered somebody once uh, who really liked the idea of being a manager, but he really hated the activity of managing people. So he would jockey for positions where he would be the manager of a team or something. And then he would do everything to weasel his way out of actually doing the management work and, and do instead very 
very technically brilliant programming work. And I always felt a bit sad for this person because like they had something they were good at, but they wished they right. would do something else. And I think and I think a lot of larger organizations have have realized that that's a common problem uh and and have created kind of that that technical uh career advancement track, you know, the peak of which is I don't know, like a, a, a principal or distinguished fellow, you know, at, at uh, Microsoft or Boeing or, you know, companies like that. There's, there's uh, people who have, who are not managers, but who are, you know, have leadership value from a technical standpoint uh, and advance in that way. And I would say that, you know, as a leader at a startup or smaller organization, you need to make sure that there are opportunities for the people under you if they want to if they want to advance in terms of moving to management there's there's almost certainly a clear cl- uh, clear hierarchy or clear path for that but you need to make sure that there is a clear path for people who are you know advancing in their career in terms of their um, technical skill architecture knowledge that kind of thing you need to make sure those people have a path forward too Exactly. Because that that essentially allows them to keep increasing in mastery, which everyone likes, but just a, a mastery that fits their personal purpose. Haha, worked into there. Nice. Yeah, exactly. So so if we look at, um, you know, we were talking about the fun versus boring parts of the job. And if, if we look at diagnosing, why aren't you having fun? I would say there there are some things that are just that are just management problems, um, and if you are a manager or a leader, these are things that you can, <laughs> you know, query your people and find out if uh, this is the reason they're not having fun in their job. Because if they're not having fun, they will be less effective. Uh, if you're an individual contributor, recognizing these things and then bringing them up with your management would be important. Uh, and there are things that are not. A management problem. It's a you problem. <laughs> so maybe let's differentiate those. Is is it a management problem or is it a you problem? So what are what are some of the things that are definitely management problems? Well, something that's definitely a management problem is not being supported by management, right? If you don't have support in achieving the the right amount of mastery, you know, you're not giving opportunities to train you're not giving you're not getting opportunities to try stuff out like hey boss can i take three days to try out this framework and see if it works for us um so that's one thing autonomy is the other big thing um and i think we need to dissect that some more because there are so many different elements to autonomy but certainly that is something autonomy is something that principally comes from those who set the guidelines on a cultural level, on a technical level, on an organizational level. So that's certainly a management problem. But one that is maybe the most egregious is, do you even know the direction you're supposed to be going in? Purpose, in other words. Do you know the product vision, the company vision? Because most people who go in my trainings don't. So if you say essentially what's, and, and there's kind of, there's different ways, there's different levels of that that we can unpack, but, you know, basically at, at, at the most fundamental, what problem is your organization trying to solve? What's, 
what's the the purpose of why your organization exists. And yes, it's to make money and increase shareholder value. <laughs> but there better be something else. Because uh, if you want to make money, you know, you can open a bank at night, as they say. Um, <laughs> exactly. And, and quite frankly, <laughs> I don't care even the least bit about shareholder value. Like, their shareholders know exactly where they can stick their value, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely, uh, definitely start screaming that a little bit louder. <laughs> no, but it, it's true. Like, I, I, I don't care at all. Right. Unless I'm a shareholder, which I'm probably not. So, but I, I will say, essentially, there, there's the vision of what your company wants to achieve. And then there's um, one level below that, I would say, is the strategy of, okay, this is where we're trying to go. How are we getting there? you know, that, that is what filters then down to product development direction. Um, you know, what, am, you know, every person who's in the company, who's kind of doing their day-to-day -day work should ideally have an understanding of how that day-to-day -day work moves the company in the right direction and what that direction actually is. They, as much as possible, those people should have a tangible understanding of, I am doing this because our company is trying to go to point A and I am helping the company move to point A in this way. Um, exactly, exactly. And um, this is why I find it so remarkable that so few people are actually able to... Okay, firstly, that so many organizations don't have a clear vision. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they have some flimsy, you know, two, three paragraphs of whatever random thing they come up with but they don't really have a clear and compelling story about this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing it and also many employees just don't know and i say this you know this is something that should be front and center in every uh sprint planning session you should i don't know pin your product vision to the wall and say okay this particular user story, in what way does it move us closer to the vision that we're having? Um, and we, I think we talked about this a little bit in um, in the episode with John Odo on, on product roadmaps, because they are, of course, clearly re closely related mm -hmm. to, to visions. So in case you are not quite certain what a good vision looks like, my favorite example is always um, Kennedy's moon landing speech that was sort of really short and clear cut, uh, and, and it just made it crystal clear what, what the goal was. What did he say? Our goal is to, before the decade is out, send a man to the moon and return him safely to the earth. That was just so nice and crystal clear. When? End of decade. What? Man, <laughs> moon, and back safely. Yep. Everything else we'll figure out. And I, I kind of a more modern, it's still in the space regime, a more modern version of that. And, and this is leaving Elon Musk aside, your feelings toward him. I have complicated feelings about Elon Musk. But SpaceX to me is, is an example of an organization with a very crystal clear purpose. You know, we want to colonize Mars. And then there are several, quite a few long-term steps on the way to doing that. Well, in order to that, we need to have um, very capable rockets. In order to support that, we need to learn how to do it. And we need to have an organization that is making money producing rockets. And so we need to, you know, 
build a robust business that's launching satellites around the earth. In order to do that robustly, we need to solve the economics. So we need to be able to reuse parts of the rockets, which means we need to be able to land them. And so like all of, all of those things kind of are strategic, clear strategic choices to implement the long-term vision. And I think, you know, if you're working on a widget on an engine at SpaceX, you have a pretty clear understanding of like why you are working on that widget. <laughs> um, I, I imagine that is, I, I know nothing about SpaceX. I've, I've not done any work for them or been inside the organization, but I would imagine it is pretty clear down to the lowest level, how everyone is contributing to that overall vision. And if you don't agree with that vision, they probably, they probably made sure when they hired you that you understood that vision and agree with that overall vision. Exactly. And so my point is, you deserve to have this explained to you. You deserve to know the product vision, the company vision. Um, because if not, then, you know, what are you doing? And yet another story from, from my trainings. This is uh, something that I do, for example, in my uh, specification and verification trainings, where I say, okay, everybody, please tell me how you're creating value for your customers. What, what is your cont contribution to, to customer value? And, and then I get back a list of activities like, oh yeah, I, I'm the guy who reboots the servers or you know whatever. Um, that's not what I asked. I didn't ask you whether you wrote JavaScript or not. I asked you about what did you contribute to the customer having you know a, a positive experience, whatever the value is. And that's just that's just something that is so crucial, and and that sits squarely on on the shoulders of management, right? Is everybody really clear on what they are doing here? What success looks like on the on the bigger or smaller scales? And if that's not there, then how can you have fun? If you like, if if you don't know the rules of the game, how you know you're winning? Right. Right. Okay, so it's pretty clear. So from a management, things that are a management problem, if you if you don't have a clear vision and and direction to support that vision, um, and if then you're not supporting your people to get there, those are management problems. And as an individual contributor, you need to recognize when you are lacking those and demand them as much as you can. Yes, and I think you're yeah, I think you're entitled to to demand this. Like, boss, what am I doing here? What's the point of this? CEO, what is the company vision? You, you deserve a clear answer to that as an individual contributor. Because if you don't, have, if they're not able to give you one, then what the hell are we doing here? Yeah. And this this all, you know, presupposes a certain, um, uh, you know, you're kind of at the highest level of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs here where, uh, you know, you're you have freedom to maybe change jobs if this job isn't the right one for you. You know, there's a, a certain, there's many people who are not in that, in that position. Uh, but if you are, you know, this is one of the things that, that essentially can lead to you, <laughs> as we say, not having fun and essentially not doing your best work and not actually creating value. If you're part of an organization that doesn't have a clear vision, kind of by definition, your own work doesn't have a clear vision. All right. But what are, what are some things where, you know, this is now speaking to the individual contributors. When is it a you problem, <laughs> not a management problem? I would say a lot of people underestimate their own ability to influence 
an organization. Uh, we've talked a lot in the past about, uh, you know, Jill Spolsky wrote a, a well-known blog post uh, a long time ago, gosh, 20 years ago, probably, you know, how to, <laughs> how to, how to make, I think the title of it was something like how to make progress when you're a grunt. Um, it, I, I butchered that a little bit, but it's something like that. Uh, and essentially pointing out how you can serve, uh, you know, create your own little pocket of excellence that then leads by example and, and can, you know, practices that you develop can spread throughout an organization. This is where, you know, write tests for your own software, set up a, a CI server, um, you know, start a bug tracker and re, re, you know, refuse to accept bugs by any other way. Like someone emails you a bug report, you're like, sorry, I'm going to forget, fill out the bug tracker, you know, that kind of thing. Um, a, a surprising amount of progress can be made in that way. Yeah, that's true. There, there's often so many low-hanging fruits that you can solve at the individual level, you know, such as deciding to do unit testing or TDD or what have you. Um, or at the team level where you say, okay, how about we have our own, I don't know, backtracker or our own Kanban board? Oh, you know, things that help you as an individual or as a team to move ahead, independently of how, how brain dead the rest of the organization is. Right. Um, so you talked about learned helplessness. Um, you had brought that up before we, before we hit record. Um, and how sometimes I, I would say, you know, managers and leaders of an organization can sometimes realize that something is wrong and want to make progress. And maybe their people have been <laughs> uh, trod on for so long or, or faced with a situation where uh, they weren't able to make progress for so long that essentially they adopted this learned helplessness attitude and are now not actually like now that the conditions are ripe to make a change, the people are like, yeah, this is like everything else and it's not going to change. And I don't care. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and this is a problem, especially in, in large organizations that are really trying to, to honestly change and, you know, become better organizations better perhaps in a product sense but also of course better towards their employees right and the employees are just like yeah whatever i'm just sort of sitting here in my corner suffering along silently uh, and and you tell them you don't need to suffer anymore you know if we we really want to make things right for you and they say yeah that's that's very nice i'm just going to sit there if you don't mind um yeah <laughs> that that sort of thing happens and it's difficult you know, <clears throat> I've um, I've been involved in in quite a few agile transformations of organizations, and there is always a group of people who are like that. Um, and that's is it that they is it they don't want to change, don't recognize the value of the change, or they just figure this this is just lip service like changes they've seen before. What what are some of the the pathologies that you've seen? Well, a, a lot of it is really lip service. They've become kind of numb to change uh, initiatives because, like, there's another one every other year. Um, and look, we're still working the same way that we did a hundred years ago. So yes, to some degree, they are just you know being in their own mind realistic and saying, "Look, nothing's ever going to change. This is just another high paid consultant who comes in and spews whatever." 
mighty words about agile and, and whatnot. <laughs> and then he's going to leave again. Yeah. So yeah, there are those people that are, there are also those who are just actively disinterested and say, look, will you just go away and leave me alone? I've, I figured out a system that works for me. Mm. Maybe it works badly, but you know, it, it works better the devil, you know, there's a couple of different perspectives on this. And I, I want to make it very clear that those people do have a point, and that's getting to, to the bottom line that we have to for the podcast of, you know, they're entitled to be egoistical. There's, they should be able to get an answer to, okay, what's in it for them? But this is, you know, this is a very difficult conversation to have, and, and I think it just takes time, and it, I think it also just takes a lot of positive examples. And this is so interesting because while we were recording this podcast, there was a lively discussion on on uh, a group that I'm on, a WhatsApp group of enterprise agile change, you know, coaches, consultants, call them what you will. And, and this was the problem that we are just discussing. Like, what are some of the biggest roadblocks to a successful transformation? One that, you know, doesn't just change, you know, shareholder value, but also makes work more pleasant for employees. And, uh, and they all said, you know, this hinges on management. They need to set a good example. They need to actually embrace those practices and philosophies and not just pay lip service or or even like decide that, yeah, this is something for the underlings. Let them do, uh, you know, daily scrums and whatnot. We're, we're you know, hovering here above the clouds <laughs> and, and doing our own thing. This is not how it works. Right. And and just like we had said earlier, when I when I brought up the the ways to make progress, you know, as an individual contributor. Yes, like it, it is often surprising how much um, improvement you can make by kind of building best practices from the bottom up, starting testing, starting, uh, you know, uh, good bug tracking and, and, uh, uh, continuous integration, setting that thing on a thing up. You will, you can make a surprising amount of progress. You will run into a ceiling until, until you, you can't. can't, you will run into yep. a ceiling that is basically determined by how your organization is put together. This, this is something that Luca harps on all the time. Because they see it all the time. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and this is, you know, we did, a, I think, one of our very first podcasts, it might have been like episode three or four, we we did an episode on um, product teams for the win, I think we called it. And this is talking about how uh, the organization structured to where there is, the, t the people in the organization are broken up according to the products they're working on rather than according to their function. And one of the nice things about having all of the different technical and non-technical pieces of expertise to get a certain product, you know, to, to support a certain product, either introduce it to the market or keep it going, is that you're not dependent on anyone else in the organization. Like you don't have these vast interdependencies. Well, you know, we, uh, we made a new release, but the QA department hasn't gotten to it because they've got four other products they're supporting and it's in their queue. And like, those kind of interdependencies where where functional departments can't make any progress on their own and they're constantly waiting on other functional departments and you have five different product lines and they're all going through the same 
functional departments. And so this massive backlog builds up of work in progress. It's so freaking frustrating. And you can, you as an individual contributor, you can improve best practices all you want, but you will not solve that. That is an organizational problem. You know what? That's called a lack of mass, a lack of autonomy. But but it, but your individual managers say, yeah, like do whatever you think is best, and then you're still going to run into those limits. That that's the thing that we were sort of saving about management problems. the The matter of the question of autonomy is really complex because okay, there's sort of cultural autonomy. Are you allowed to make your own choices? Will management support you? Um, will your colleagues support you even? So that's one of them. But even if you've got amazingly supportive management, mm -hmm. you might still not end up autonomous, such as in situations like the one you just described, Jeff, where there are organizational dependencies. Everybody's stuck waiting for this single um, QA department. And so everybody is dependent on this QA department. Nobody's able to autonomously move forward with the product development, let alone deployment, which is frustrating, of course. You know you've got stuff that is finished and it's just kind of sitting there gathering dust. Um, and conversely, also for the, for the QA team, I think it's a very frustrating experience because they know that all eyes are on them and everybody's kind of, you know, huffing and puffing, saying, well, can you finally, like, release this? Uh, and they're feeling the pressure and, and they can't really do things by their own rules. They're kind of stuck, I suppose, you know, when, whenever the upstream departments deliver something. So yet again, you're running out of autonomy organizationally. Even if all the managers say, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. Well, you can't, can you? Yep, there, there, are, lim there are limits to it. Yep. Exactly. And and that can also be viewed on yet another level, on the level of architecture. Like if you are tightly coupled to another service, be it inside or outside your, your organization, well, then you're losing autonomy yet again. So this is, this is something that is really difficult to get right, to enable people to be autonomous, to really apply the mastery towards the purpose that they know. Because, you know, so much goes into it. it. It has a cultural component. It has an organizational component. It has a technical, you know, architecture component. And yet it is really crucial. This is, this is something really hard. And I, I think you will need to iterate on this and, and sort of improve and, in fact, not, not slide back. Because the thing is, if you do nothing, over time, I think products and, and organizations will start to tangle more and more, you know, as technical debt builds up, organizational debt builds up, and you will sort of slowly lose autonomy. I think, uh, I think we need to do an episode on essentially some like <laughs> how to effect an agile, an agile transformation. Cause I think there's a lot of, that's uh, a difficult task. Essentially, you know, you, oh, yes. maybe you, you have a, a startup where things were, you remember the good old days when you were first starting and the team was small and you were like releasing features every other day. It was just bang, 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 bang. And then over time, the organizational 
organization grew, but it's, but that growth came with calcification and bad organizational and architectural choices. And just now, now you're stuck where you just can't get things out the door. Um, and even if you understand why getting from point A to point B, there are a lot of ways that <laughs> a lot of ways that can go wrong. A lot of off ramps off that beautiful highway. Um, so maybe we should do an episode on that. We definitely should. Um, but we're still on that episode that we decided to to call. We're not paying you to have fun. <laughs> so, yeah. <clears throat> so I think we, we kind of talked about what goes into making work enjoyable on, on you know, on, on this level. I mean, there, there is other aspects to it. Like, you need to like your co-workers, that sort of thing. And that's fine. And then in that sense, I suppose even a disappointing job can be something you look forward to because you've got awesome co-workers. And that's nothing wrong with that, of course. But this is not what we're talking about. I think in this episode, we're talking about what goes into making your work itself enjoyable. And I think um, and I think those aspects were really those. Do you have a clear purpose? Do you ha- have mastery? So do you have all the skills, knowledge, knowledge etc. you need? And do you have autonomy in multiple different layers? But how do you get there? Oh, that's the hard part. What do you say? <laughs> uh, again, I, I, I would, I would draw a line between maybe uh, uh, leaders and managers and individual contributors. Um, well, maybe, maybe drawing a line isn't appropriate, but you know, if you're if you're a leader or a manager in your organization. That's it's it's on you to provide the purpose uh, and to provide the direction, and then, just as Lucas said, you can when you culturally give people autonomy, but not organizationally give people autonomy. Um, it's easy to say, I want you guys to, you know, everyone on this team to, you know, go forth and be awesome. Your, go forth and be awesome. You know, we'll support you. We're not going to micromanage you. Um, but listen to the feedback you're getting and the feedback on on the issue that your organization is structured in a way that doesn't allow for autonomy that feedback can be harder to hear <laughs> like you'll you'll get a bunch of symptoms and you have to try to untangle that and and look at the root cause and you may realize that you know as much as you tell people to go forth and be awesome that your organizational structure is preventing them uh, they may not realize it you may have to be the one to realize it. If as an individual contributor, you realize one of these things, it's really, it is on you. It is your responsibility to push that up the chain and try to make management and leadership see that. Um, and just getting them to recognize there's a problem is the first step. Exactly. So I, I think you can summarize it and say, okay, the three elements that go into this are, you know, autonomy, mastery, and purpose. And how do you get closer to achieving those? is by building feedback loops on an organizational level. Like, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe feed, gathering feedback can be as simple as asking your CEO, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot, what's our company vision? Uh, and if he kind of stammers, then, you know, 
hopefully he's enlightened enough to to realize, oh, that shouldn't happen. Like that's a really bad sign. So in that sense, closing feedback loops um, on on many different levels, on technical levels, on cultural levels, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is I think the important step. And I like that a lot. Exactly, and and of course acting on that, like instituting things like. If you don't do retrospectives, maybe you should start doing them. So that's important. And one thing that is really important to me uh, that I keep repeating in all my Agile trainings, you are entitled to be egoistical about this. You are perfectly entitled to ask, okay, what's in this for me? Why should I care about this transformation? Because it should be about you. Like, you know, if the shareholders are lucky, it will result in higher shareholder value to them. And that's that's kind of nice. But fundamentally, I think it's about every one of us being given the tools to do our jobs better. And I think that in itself will make it more enjoyable and, and hopefully make it so that uh, you're not, maybe you're not paid to have fun, but you're still having fun. <laughs> Absolutely. And I, and I think a, an organization where the people are having fun is going to be more effective and, and people are going, it's, there's, it's a chicken and egg thing. There's people are going to have more fun if the organization is effective. If you, if you see the connection between what you're doing every day and, and the change you're affecting upon the world, um, if you're too far removed from that, it's not going to be fun. If you see that direct connection, it will be more fun. Exactly. And, 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 you know, in, importance and, and vision and, and fun can be found even in maybe really dry areas such as, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're working for the IRS or something, which I suppose <laughs> is a very dry work. But I think you can say, you know, what's our purpose here? We are about providing, you know, justice and equality. We, we are trying to provide a fair playing field for everyone. And maybe that's a nice goal to work towards and say, okay, this is actually something that I care about. I don't care about the stupid tax forms. Nobody cares about the tax forms. Nobody likes the tax forms. Um, not even the IRS, I'm sure. But maybe, you know, equality and justice are things that maybe they care about, for instance. Absolutely. Well said. All right. Anything else you want to cover before we uh, wrap this one up? No, I think this is an excellent place to leave it. Good, good. All right, Luca, where can people go to find you online? Please go to luca.engineer. Luca is L-U-C-A, and engineer, I'm sure you know how to spell. And there you find my contact info, you find my blog posts, etc. Jeff, what about you? Go to jeffgable.com. And again, it's easy to find out how to get in touch with me, and I'd love to hear from you. All right, this has been the Agile Embedded Podcast. I'm Jeff Gable. And I'm Luca Njani. And we will see you next time. Thanks. Thank you. Bye-bye.